Hey there, it's Kesonga, and I have a really cool announcement for y'all. Headspace is now offering mental health coaching in the Headspace app. You can connect with a trained expert for live, text-based one-on-one support on your time from anywhere. Whether they're helping you cope with daily stress and anxiety or supporting you through big life events like loss or relationship hurdles, your coach will draw from clinically validated tools to help you reach any mental health goals. You can text a mental health coach for just $99.99 a month. Just sign up on the Headspace app or at headspace.com slash coaching. So we're walking along this path on the edge of Hampstead Heath, a place that's been here for almost 2,000 years. And I always love taking people on this path for the first time because it doesn't feel like we are in the middle of London. You feel like you're kind of going back in time. The city starts to evaporate as we get deeper into the green and the woods of the heath. We're just about to get to the Hampstead Heath Ladies' Ponds. So here we are. This is where I come when I need a break. Once you get far enough in to escape the sounds of the surrounding roads and shops, there's a real sense of timelessness here. It's not like a normal swimming pool at all. You can see the tree roots going into it, the bulrushes coming out of it, and a little smattering of dead leaves along the side. My grandma swam here into her 80s, and in these murky waters, surrounded by other women of all shapes and ages, I can see why she kept on coming. It's really nice to get changed standing under really old trees. The water is dark. I'm going to dip my feet in first just to check it out. Oh, wow. And absolutely freezing. When I'm here, it's like I've escaped time. Escaped the noise, the stress and overwhelm of the everyday. The endless meetings, the to-do lists, the self-improvement, the Twitter feeds, the Instagram grid, the news churn, the family commitments, the shopping list, spiralling inequality, the climate crisis. I wonder if you ever feel the same. If you do, I'd love to invite you to come and join me at the Longtime Academy where over six episodes, we'll discover how stretching time can improve our lives today and tackle the huge threats we're facing as a species. So here we are, the Long Time Academy. I'm really glad you're here. My name is Ella, and now that I've dried off, perhaps we should begin with a little orientation. 
That feeling I described, the sense of being stuck in a jam-packed present, of firefighting every minute, well, six years ago something happened. Something which made me start to suspect that it wasn't just sucking the joy out of the day-to-day, but also seriously affecting our future as a species. Time just didn't feel like our friend. But more on that later. What's important to know is that it set me on a journey to meet people from all around the world who were thinking differently about time. They were looking for space, solutions, and a bit of joy too. Now, just a few years later, the world has never felt weirder or more overwhelming. And I think it's safe to say that a lot of us are looking for new ways to think about how we want to live. This is where the Long Time Academy comes in. As I've been exploring our relationship with time, I've met people from all around the world who have been thinking about how we can be better ancestors and how that can make us happier today. We, humans, are related to every other life form in an unbroken chain that starts at about 3.5 billion years ago. It's a much more interesting trip than like microdosing or something. This is totally accessible with no drugs or whatever. It's just through the intoxicant that is learning more about the world. You stop being the single most important point in the universe. You're, you're a part of a fabric. What I've discovered is an incredible collection of ideas and practices that have fundamentally challenged the way I think about the past, experience the present, and feel about what's coming down the road. I realise emotionally, spiritually, intuitively, that the Earth really is alive in a much more powerful way than I had ever imagined or that my science had ever told me. Of the economists from the 1850s, if they were alive today, I swear they would say, what are you doing? Imagining new futures really heals past traumas. The conversations that start today affect what happens 500 years from now. So the conversations start today. I'll be your guide through a collection of carefully selected conversations, ancient and futuristic wisdom, experiments and practices for you to do yourself. Each of the contributors is gathered at the Academy because I think they'll inspire you in different ways. Legacy gives people symbolic immortality. If you increase your aroha, your connection, your connectivity, then you are increasing your modi or your well-being. One of the most beautiful things I've gotten to be a part of in my life has been Black liberation. There's a lot of ways of seeing Black people in the future. And I hope that experienced together over six episodes, they will genuinely transform how you feel about the time you have on Earth. Thinking about your mortality is central to being a good ancestor because you're thinking about what the world looks like after you die. It requires you not to be the center of the universe anymore. It creates a lot more value for life itself. This is what I'm really excited to share with you. Rather than a school, think of it as an academy in the Greek sense, where we'll gather philosophers, scientists, politicians, artists, indigenous wisdom keepers and economists to share with you how embracing longer time spans, getting long time, is transformational. It can change everything, from the way we structure our societies to how we feel about our lives and our deaths, to our sense of being able to shape the future. 
Each part of the academy is accompanied by a long time practice designed to help you not just understand what it is to become a long time thinker, but how it actually feels to be one and what that might mean for your life. So let's get started. Today, we're focusing on this very moment, what we call now. Because as we're about to discover, how we define the now defines us as a culture. And so I'd like to begin by reflecting on the present moment. How does time feel for you today? Celeste, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. Where are you? I'm just outside DC and covered in cicadas. I mean, speaking of time, we're surrounded by bugs who are on a 17-year cycle. So <laughs> if there's anything that reminds you of the cyclical nature of nature, then it's cicadas. I'd like to introduce you to Celeste Headley. She's an author, journalist, opera singer, and radio host who has written a lot about how we are spending our time minute to minute, week to week. And a few years ago, she found herself massively burnt out. I'd had bronchitis for the third time, and I think it was like nine months. And my doctor said, listen, your immune system is broken. Like, it's exhausted right now. You're too busy. I sort of nodded, knowing perfectly well that I didn't have time to take time off. (laughs) Celeste found herself trying to be more and more efficient, experimenting with productivity apps, setting timers for tasks, and boundaries on how she used each hour. If you don't even have enough time to be healthy, that's the moment to stop and say, wait a second, where are the 24 hours per day going? One of the big eye-openers for me was when I started resenting my meditation time every day. And I had to stop myself and say, look, this is literally something that you do for no reason except that you love it and it's part of your practice. This is like for your soul. That's when I finally realized it was much deeper than just finding an hour or so every day to be away from my cell phone. It was way more ingrained. Celeste's book ended up being called Do Nothing. And I think in many ways our projects are similar. They're both inviting us to think more intentionally about time. I don't think people put any more thought into where their time goes than they would a penny dropping out of their pocket. People sort of survive time and they get to the end of the day and they just think, ah. What's going on tomorrow or I got to get through? It's like they're enduring time rather than feeling it. In 2019, the WHO was already warning people about an epidemic of burnout. Burnout is not having a bad day or even a bad week. It's when you spend a fair amount of time on a regular basis feeling overwhelmed and overworked. And you have to add on top of that the fact that 2020 was traumatic. People are on the edge, and they have been on the edge for a while. 
I don't know about you, but I find that when I'm feeling overwhelmed and anxious and insecure, I often work more or procrastinate harder and basically just put myself under even more pressure. When did your workday start and when did it end? When you get into this state of stress and overwork and burnout, your body doesn't distinguish that from an actual physical threat. Your amygdala takes over. It's the oldest evolutionary part of your brain, and it is motivated by fear and threat. It is exactly what you want running the show if you're being chased by a tiger. It's not what you want making your decisions. And as Celeste points out, when our internal alarm systems are always on, it can have a really profound effect on our body and our relationships. You're going to see your cortisol level shoot up, which is a stress hormone that often leads to heart disease. You're going to see things like moodiness. You become defensive. You become irritated. Less likely to be compassionate. Less likely to be empathetic. You have troubled sleep. Also become more impulsive. You may be getting dopamine, which is the addiction hormone. You get a shot of dopamine, for example, every time you refresh your Twitter feed. But you're not getting the things like serotonin and oxytocin, the happiness hormone or the mommy's hug hormone. You're not getting these things that can bathe your brain in relaxation and peace that will switch off that threat level. And it's also very possible that you're not taking the time for yourself that would give you a, a reset point. People tell me that they sit on the couch and they try to just watch a movie without also checking their phones and they feel guilty, they feel shame when they're not productive. The fact that we can end up feeling guilty for even the small amounts of time we take for ourselves begs the question, who owns the rest of our time? It's a great question, who owns the rest of our time? And that's when you sort of begin to realize how little of your time most of us have a real control over. When I first began to dig into my own problems with burnout and overwork, I thought I would find that our modern habits of social media and smartphones were going to be the source of my problem. But it turns out when you examine the labor records that we have, people's diaries going back to the ages of the ancient Greeks and the Mayans, human beings lived a particular way for most of our 300,000 years on the planet. We worked less than half a year. You would have a big output of labor. You would harvest your crops, which is long hours, a lot of effort. And then you had a one or two week harvest festival. So you would pulse labor and relaxation and labor in relaxation. But then came the Industrial Revolution. Then we discovered that we could build factories and you don't have just an artisan carving, you know, a bookshelf. You could have six people on a line putting together the same bookshelf over and over and over and over again. And it didn't matter how good they were at their craft. All you needed was their time. The Industrial Revolution brought us this idea that time is money. And it's so literal that in some cases you have records of employers surreptitiously moving the hands of the clock to make it appear that it wasn't quitting time yet and they could quite literally steal the time of their employees. 
the changes came about so quickly that there just were no regulations in place. So you had employers demanding 16, 18 hour days. And politicians were so drunk with the amount of money that was then being produced that they didn't even see it as a negative. They saw all of this production as absolutely a benefit. I can't even describe how much of life shifted. Unsurprisingly, people weren't happy working 18 hours a day for hardly any pay. So they began to fight to get their time back. Sometime around the beginning of the 20th century, there became a global effort to bring about the eight-hour workday. But it was a bloody battle. I mean, people literally lost their lives in the fight for the eight-hour workday. For example, in the United States, you would have unions decide to have a parade or a march or a protest demanding an eight-hour workday. And then you would see industrialists, factory owners sending in thugs to beat them. Henry Ford used to send out thugs to intimidate workers with the United Auto Workers, and part of that was over long hours. So this became a global consciousness of the fact that, as they used to say, we should have eight hours labor, eight hours recreation, eight hours rest. And it's been very, very recent that they achieved it, less than a hundred years since we got the eight hour workday. Our grandparents and great-grandparents died to bring us an eight-hour day. And then we go home and we check our email from the dinner table. Now we choose to give our employers more of our time. It's horrifying. The worst countries right now for overwork are the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. We donate billions of dollars to our employers by choosing not to take our vacation time. I mean, I mean, I almost don't know even what to say. <laughs> Eight hours is becoming 10, is becoming 12, as the phones in our pockets connect us to work. Emails that can be answered at the dinner table just before going to sleep at night, first thing in the morning before even getting out of bed. What happened? A guy named Edward Bernays was employed in the Office of Propaganda in World War One, And he started figuring out how to use the new field of psychology called psychological warfare. His uncle was Sigmund Freud, by the way. But he started employing these ideas about psychology and how the mind works to figure out how to manipulate people to do things without explicitly asking them to do so or forcing them to do so. When war is over and he, he returns to commercial life, Bernays starts using these exact same things he used to coerce over the war through propaganda to help out corporate executives, to help advertisers. And you literally see these posters that are just, I look at them now and it's unbelievable they had these hanging around factories talking about the righteous man doesn't take a day off. He knows someone else will slip in and do that work for him. And these constant messages about the virtuous, how great it is and admirable it is to work hard. And that's when you start seeing these stories of all our self-made men in history cropping up again. 
they also start working on consumers. So you get Henry Ford saying, well, I'm going to pay people more money, not because it's the right thing to do, but because I want every single one of my employees to be able to afford to buy a Ford. They're giving you enough money so that you're able to purchase the products that you're making. But it wasn't just the manipulative copywriting of Edward Bernays and corporations working on our collective psyches. Oftentimes, corporate executives would go and develop relationships with church leaders through big donations, through helping them fundraise for their churches. Then the priests and the pastors would get up in the pulpit on Sunday morning and preach about how God loves hard workers and idle hands are the devil's playground. And so you have these three incredibly strong forces working together. You have capitalism and consumerism, you've got national pride and patriotism, and then you bring in religion, all working on people's psyches to tell them, if you are not producing something, you are bad and you deserve nothing. (laughs) You have to earn your place on this earth. Your worth is defined by how hard you work. I mean, think about this for a second. It's the most successful propaganda campaign in the history of humankind. We allow work to ooze into every other corner of our lives. We're living in this, in terms of time, toxic dump (laughs) because we don't let hours go by without checking in with work. Let me ask you a question. How many days of vacation time does it take before you stop thinking about work unbidden? Max Weber wrote that machinery had come to control the lives of most people, and he wondered if it would continue to determine their lives, quote, until the last ton of fossilized coal is burnt, unquote, and the industry that was meant to improve human life would ultimately become, quote, an iron cage. His concern that we'd exhaust our resources and imprison ourselves has been justified. think that it's our fault that we're not being productive enough, efficient enough, not hacking our time well enough. But when we take a step back and understand that the reason we feel this way isn't because of our individual inadequacies, but because of this system that collectively we have been tricked into participating in, well, that changes things. How can any of us be expected to think about next week, let alone next year, the next decade, the next century? It's bad for us, not just individually, but for society as a whole. Philosopher Roman Krasnarik calls this the tyranny of now. Oh, it sounds like he's already started. Go on in. Sorry we're late, Roman. Do you mind just starting again and telling the students who you are? Okay. 
My name is Roman Krasnarek. I'm a writer and public philosopher. I believe we live in the age of the tyranny of the now. We're constantly looking at our phones, checking the next text, clicking the buy now button. Politicians can't see past the next election or even the latest tweet, and they're constantly in hock to opinion polls as well as to their corporate funders, which keep their minds focused on the present. Businesses can't see past the quarterly report. We've got nanosecond speed share trading. Nations sit around international conference tables, bickering away while the planet burns and species disappear. The future is coming towards us closer and closer and closer, that we are trapped in a kind of myopia in cultural life and political life and economic life. The origins of short-term thinking go back at least half a millennium to the age of the invention of the first mechanical clock in Europe in the 14th century. That's when time started being measured and sped up. By 1700, most clocks had minute hands. By 1800, they had second hands. The clock became the key machine of the industrial age, speeding up the assembly line, punishing workers who were going too slow. And now, of course, time has sped up even more, taking us away from connecting with the longer-term questions that we're facing in our own lives and that humanity is facing more broadly. If we can extend our time horizons, we can deal with them much more effectively. So short-termism, the tyranny of now, doesn't only burn us out as individuals, but it could burn us out as a species. I think at the moment, there's something like a one in six chance that humanity doesn't make it through this century without long-term potential intact. I'm Toby Ord. I'm a philosopher at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. It's useful to divide existential risk into the natural risks, this background of risk that humanity has faced every century in our 2,000-year existence so far and then also into the anthropogenic risk, the risks of our own creation. Like the climate crisis, or nuclear war, or unchecked AI. We're in one of the most vulnerable positions that humanity has been in. But I don't think that our fate is preordained. I think that there's a good chance that we'll wake up fast enough if we could take seriously this idea that all people are created equal and that our lives matter just as much, no matter where we are on the Earth or no matter when we live. People in the future matter just as much. This is a bit harder to see. To some extent, the future feels really up in the air. But if you adopt the standard economist approach of discounting, where you discount the future and you think that each year in the future matters less and less and less, you end up with very crazy results. For example, from the perspective of Tutankhamun in ancient Egypt, the lives of everyone alive today is worth less than the value of one day in the life of one of his subjects. In the same way as we would be horrified if it was all thrown away, this entire future, just to make some minor improvement at that time. So people in the future should be horrified to think that our economic leaders are, are discussing such approaches at the moment, which would just reject their equality just because they live at a different time. In the next two centuries alone, tens of billions of people will be born. Amongst them, 
or your grandchildren and their grandchildren and the friends and communities on whom they'll depend. The tragedy of this situation is that we now recognize that future generations have got no political rights or representation. They have no influence in the marketplace. They can't throw themselves in front of the king's horse like a suffragette or block an Alabama bridge like a civil rights activist. And I think what this creates in society is this terrible disjunction between how we live our lives incredibly in the here and now and our responsibility to future generations. So there's a real question there for us of how will all those future generations look back on us? How will they judge us for what we did or didn't do when we had the chance? In the same way that the Vikings felt that their ancestors were gazing down at them from the hallways of Valhalla, we need to feel that gaze of the past and the future upon the here and now. Let's take a breath here. What Roman has just described, stretching our time frames backwards and forwards, connecting to future generations, it's what this academy is all about. Can learning to care about the beings who will be around in the next 100, 1,000, even 10,000 years help us rethink and reset And if short-term thinking got us into this mess, can long-term thinking get us out of it? If you're interested in becoming a long-term thinker and long-term feeler, you need to start looking inside your own brain. We need to challenge the mythology that human beings are fundamentally short-term creatures by nature. This is one of the narratives that we are driven by instant rewards and immediate gratification. I call that human driver the marshmallow brain. It's the part of our neural wiring which is dedicated to instant gratification, to immediate rewards. It's an ancient part of the brain, at least 80 million years old. I call it the marshmallow brain, named after the famous marshmallow test done by psychologists in the 1960s where a marshmallow was put in front of kids and if they could resist eating it for 15 minutes, they were rewarded with a second marshmallow. And that particular study showed that the majority of kids could not resist and snatched the snack. And it was taken as evidence that we are overwhelmed by our short-term desires. It's a very strong part of who we are and we shouldn't forget that but it does not focus on the incredible human capacity for long-term thinking and planning and strategizing. And that's what I call the acorn brain, the part that lives in our frontal lobe, just above our eyes, at the front of our head, particularly a part called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. I call it the acorn brain because it's all about planting seeds and thinking for the long-term. It's more developed in humans than most other creatures. So a chimpanzee, for example will plan ahead a little bit. They'll get a stick from a tree and take off the leaves to turn it into a tool to poke into a termite hole. But a chimpanzee will never make a dozen of these tools and set them aside for next week. But that is precisely what a human being will do. We are long-term planners extraordinaire. We have a capacity to perform the temporal pirouette. We can dance across time horizons One moment looking at our phones, but the next moment thinking about saving for our children's education or planting the seed of an oak which may not mature for 200 years. That's the acorn brain in action. 
That's how we built the Great Wall of China. That's how we voyaged into space. And this is the kind of thinking we need to switch on. Hi, my name is Eve, and I'm one of the teachers at Headspace. There are a lot of incredible ideas being discussed here at the Longtime Academy. I thought you might like to take a moment to let some of these ideas sink in. I invite you to take some deep breaths with me. So breathing in through the nose and then out through the mouth. And one more deep breath in through the nose and then out through the mouth. and just allowing your breathing to return to its natural rhythm and its natural rate. So if you'd like more of this, along with meditation courses, sleep and focus exercises, join me inside of the Headspace app. Go to headspace.com and use code LONGTIME at checkout for 30 days free. That's headspace.com. Use code LONGTIME at checkout. Now, back to the show. If you'd indulge me for a moment, I'd like to tell you a story. I've got an eight-year-old nephew called Finley. He's absolutely obsessed by Minecraft now. This is my Manelian Falcon. I built all on my own. But for the first few years of life, he was completely obsessed by doors. Sliding doors, front doors, elevator doors, any door. One wet September afternoon, I was looking after him at my mum's house in the country. He was playing with a door on the large cloak cupboard in her hallway and I was reading an article about climate change. As he slammed the door over and over, I was absorbing the latest research on the possible four-degree temperature rise by the end of the century. And then the slamming stopped. I looked up and saw my tiny nephew about to pull this huge cupboard on top of him. Driven by blind fear and without thinking, somehow I managed to leap forward, scoop him up and push the cupboard back before the unthinkable happened. As Finley started screaming at being taken away from a really fun game, I started to cry too. It wasn't just the shock. In that moment, it really hit me I wouldn't be around to scoop him up and save him from the world that I'd been reading about in that article. For the first time, I was truly seeing the future through the eyes of someone I loved, someone who would be living in this terrifying four-degree world long after I was gone.
I now know that I was experiencing something called intergenerational empathy. It was a complete revelation for me, but it's not new. For many, if not most, indigenous cultures, thinking about future generations is utterly embedded into their worldview and way of life. And so, to understand what this really means, I'd like us to head to upstate New York to meet mother and daughter Diane and Michelle Shenandoah. My name is Diane Shenandoah. I'm a faith keeper for the Wolf Clan of the Oneida Nation. It is my duty, role, and responsibility to look out for the spiritual welfare of our people. Michelle Shenandoah. I'm a member of the Oneida Nation Wolf Clan here today with my mom. Diane and her daughter were traditional members of the Oneida Nation, one of six indigenous nations that make up the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Our lands used to go from Canada all the way down to the Carolinas. We've lived under the principles of peace for at least a thousand years. Intergenerational empathy, or seven-generation thinking, sits at the very heart of their culture. And to understand it properly, we need to start at the very, very beginning. Haudenosaunee, our matrilineal society. We trace our identity through our mothers, and it brings us all the way back to those early times of Sky Woman. And within our way of life, we come from a distant place within the universe that we call Sky World. We begin from the sky. We are star beings. The very first person to come here was a woman named Sky Woman. That great tree was uprooted. There was a hole there. She fell through. She grabbed seeds as she was falling. And she was pregnant. As she came down and through the sky, the geese saw her and they knew she needed a place to land. So they caught her on their wings and carried her down. And the world was only water then. When she came here, the animals all came to help her. It was the turtle that volunteered his back for her to be placed upon. The turtle came to the surface and they say each animal dove down trying to bring up mud and dirt from the bottom of the waters. Each one failed. Then it was a muskrat that was finally successful to bring up in his paws some dirt and put it on top of the turtle's back. So at times you can hear our people talk about the lands being called Turtle Island. And this is where Sky Woman began life here. She gave birth to a daughter and the two of them began to name and create the natural world that you see. She danced and did the woman's dance and the earth began to grow. Anytime our ceremonies are done, we dance in honor of women, all of the women. And we call it Asgane, where it's done like a shuffle, and their feet move back and forth, caressing Mother Earth. Yo, hey, yo, hey, yo, hey, yo, hey, yo. 
And what we're doing is we're rekindling continually that life-giving relationship that we have with the earth by staying connected to her. Our feet do not come up off the ground during those times. We are here because of seventh generation thinking. Every decision that we make today, we think about how is that going to affect seven generations ahead. As people, we orientate ourselves and our thinking around paying attention to the natural world. We aren't better than the animals in the woods. We aren't better than the plants. We are all equal. We're all equal status, and that's a very important element. And as human beings, we only take what we need. We leave some for others, and we make sure that there are some there for those future generations. That's how we walk in balance. And that's still very much a part of our decision-making process to this day. All of the leadership take every element into consideration when making a decision for our people. How does it impact those future generations? How does it impact all the people now? How does it impact all of creation? And we have to take all of that into consideration. And you know, a lot of times our, our grand councils, our meetings of all of our leadership would, would last for days and, and weeks, they would say, because it is a long thought process of how it would affect the seven generations coming. In order to get yourself into that space, you think about what's provided for you and you give thanks for it every day. You build a relationship with it because when you do that, it changes your thinking. You think twice about the grass that you walk upon when you have a relationship with every blade of grass. You think twice about the birds that you see that show up every day with their beautiful song. You think twice about that glass of water that you're drinking. And when you give thanks for it, you acknowledge it. It's a spirit. It's living. You're thanking it. How good does it feel to you as a human being when someone thanks you just for existing? When someone says, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so grateful for you. Doesn't that bring a smile to your face? Seventh generation thinking in action is very, very simple. You have to look at the seven generations ahead with love. You're to love one another. I love them, even though they're not in front of me, even though they're not here. They're still part of me. It becomes part of how you live, how you think, how you breathe, how you conduct yourself, how you treat your children. Because they are those next generations that will grow to become the ones who become those stewards of the land. So we always make sure that we tend to the young ones. We use what's called a good mind. It's said that when we speak to each other, it's supposed to feel like warm water. It's supposed to feel comfortable. It's supposed to feel soothing. That's how that loving kindness comes into play in our lives. If we ignore them and we think that our business is more important, they're going to grow up doing the same thing, continuing to ignore future generations. 
it's not just a matter of words, but actually the actions of love, the actions of taking care of. Every action that we do is an energy. So we have to be mindful of the energy that we put out. It's paramount that you do things with love in order for it to be genuine. Empathy and compassion without love is just just an arrogant pity. <laughs> There was a time when our people's way of life was outlawed within the United States, within Canada. So a lot of that went underground. And there were keepers of that knowledge, keepers of those ceremonies and those ways of life. Throughout the generations, the younger generations continue to bring it more to the forefront. And we're still here. We're still living into these ways that we've been living since time immemorial. In general, the overall American culture, it's really lost its, its basis and its balance. It's a me, a I culture, and we really have to get back to the we culture. It's important that people get back to what's real, how you can help your fellow neighbor, your family, your loved ones, your animals, your the, the plants around you, the trees, the natural elements around us. Put away your own personal possessions. Put yourself away for a bit. Put your ego away for a bit. And just look up. Everything has a duty on this earth. Everything. And are we doing that duty? That is the question we need to ask ourselves. I get emotional listening to Diane when she says that she truly loves the people of the future like they're right in front of her. I feel it. Her sense of care for all those yet to be born is palpable. And it has me asking, if we're honest with ourselves, do we have a connection with future generations that feels as profound? Now we intellectually know there will be billions of lives after us, can we cultivate a deep love, warmth and care for them? This is a question that the next visitor to the Academy has been exploring. My name is Jamil Zaki. I'm a professor of psychology at Stanford University. I direct the Stanford Social Neuroscience Lab for my entire career, I've been fascinated, bordering with obsessed on human connection. And I'm the author of The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. Empathy is probably one of the key ingredients in making our species what it is. We are nothing if not the world champions of collaboration, kindness, and togetherness. And I know that doesn't always come across in the news, but it's true <laughs> compared to any other animal on Earth. We express so much goodwill towards each other. Our emotional connections to each other is at the heart of our ability to succeed. If you look around you, wherever you are, unless you are deep in the forest, you are surrounded by the fruits of human collaboration. 
every bridge, every building, and every cultural product. The fact that we understand physics and math and literature, folklore and art, those are all gifts from previous generations. In fact, Jamil calls us the kindest species. And it's great to think that the evidence is all around us, in the buildings we walk in, the stories and songs we love to hear, and even the TV shows we watch. And I watch a lot of television, particularly tear-jerking makeover shows. And you are such an amazing man. You're making me cry. No, it's okay. You're such a good man. We can feel for and connect with not just people who are there with us in the room, but people whose experiences we read about in the newspaper, thousands of miles away from us. Fictional characters make us weep even though their suffering or joy are wholly imaginary. And critically, people who were alive in the past or potentially who will be alive in the future. So this is all really good news. If you're listening to this thinking, I love this, but it's not how the world feels right now, there is a reason for that. We are in an empathy shortage right now. The average young adult in the U.S. in 2009 reported being less empathic than 75% of U.S. young adults in 1979, a huge drop in just a few decades. If you think about the world in which human empathy evolved, you need to go back a couple hundred thousand years, probably. At that time, what was our social world like? Well, we existed in tiny bands of hunter-gatherers. When you saw another person, they were probably familiar to you, maybe even related to you. People knew each other's history of kindness and cruelty. Karma was real and concrete. Think about the world that we're living in now. Oftentimes, our interactions are just the opposite. They're anonymous and transactional. We're often reduced to avatars and strings of text. Social media highlights our differences from each other. The first thing that you learn about somebody is often the thing that you fear or loathe the most about them. It's almost as though, you know, if you wanted to build a system to break human empathy, you could scarcely do better than the one that we have. If our empathy has been so recently turned down by today's culture, surely we can use culture to turn it back up again. A lot of us tend to imagine that empathy is a fixed trait. That's not true at all. Our genes do matter to our empathy, but some experiences can cause our empathy to weaken and others can cause it to grow and strengthen. I think of it sort of like a muscle that we can exercise or let atrophy. My lab and I often think about the work that we do as building empathy gyms for people, places that they can go to exercise their capacity for care and understanding. There are lots of ways to do this Probably one of the most effective is also one of the oldest, and it's a form of contemplative practice called loving-kindness meditation, or metta. Metta is a very simple practice that basically starts by wishing goodwill towards ourselves 
and then towards people in our lives who we care about, then towards strangers, maybe towards people we have a difficult time with, even our enemies, and then finally towards all living beings. Scientists did structural scans of people, which is a picture how much real estate in your brain different areas take up. And they found that loving-kindness meditation actually expanded or grew parts of the brain that are commonly associated with trying to tap in to the experiences of other people. In other words, when I say that empathy is a muscle, that's sort of a metaphor, but it's sort of not. I'm pleased to be able to tell you that we're going to be coming back to this idea of loving-kindness in part three of the Academy. But for now, let's walk over to another station in Jamil's metaphorical empathy gym. I think of empathy for the future as sort of the holy grail of our human capacities in a way. It's super difficult because we can't see them. But it's not just that we can't see them, they don't really exist right now at all. Future generations don't have many of the qualities that often allow us to empathize. Philosophers tell us, hey, we need to take care of the future because billions and billions of people depend on us right now to treat them kindly. Future generations could outnumber everyone on the planet by a million to one. The numbers that we're told, instead of making us care, they can make us feel totally overwhelmed. That can short-circuit our capacity for empathy. What Roman told us earlier about acknowledging the sheer number of people in the future, it might actually be having the opposite effect. We need to create those triggers ourselves. We need to make the future as vivid as we can. Not just, okay, well, this person, how tall are they or anything like that, but what do they care about? What do they worry about? What's their world like? Just taking a few moments to patiently step into the future can help us, in the long term, grow our capacity to care about the future. where I need to make a bit of a confession about my nephew. That article I was reading when he was playing in the cupboard, I was reading it as part of my work as a climate campaigner. By that point in 2014, I'd spent well over a decade digesting research and reports. And when it had become clear that the scary facts weren't hitting home with the public or politicians... They started to lose their potency with me. Instead of compelling, they were numbing. The problem felt too big and I felt too small in the face of it. I was finding it really hard to care about something that I felt so powerless to change. And I think that's something that a lot of us can relate to. I mean, the news lets us know every week in some new way that we are the pivot generation, the first ones who know the scale of the problem and the last ones who can change things. 
that we're the only ones who are in a position to turn the steering wheel away from a horoscope version of tomorrow and that we've got less than a decade to join forces around the globe and do it. The question I'd like to ask you right now is how does that make you feel? Really, truly, honestly. Does it make you want to lay down and weep at the scale and complexity of the problem? Or does it make you feel excited at the prospect of taking on the challenge and living at this incredible moment in history? For me, that moment with that bloody cupboard took me from the former to the latter. Not in a split second, it was much messier than that, but it did start a process that over the space of a few years started to make me feel less futile. To make what I did matter, whether it was a climate campaign or a small interaction with a stranger. Thinking about the future suddenly didn't feel doomy and joyless all the time, but there were many more moments of possibility and purpose. Because right now, like, things are urgent. We can't pretend that they're not. And because of that, rather than wait for everyone to have their own individual cupboard moments to get started on their long-time journey, I've created the first of our long-time practices for you. I'd love you to have a go before you listen to the next episode. It's a 10-minute guided meditation called Human Lairs, and you can find it next to this episode in your podcast feed. I've done it with hundreds of people, from hardcore climate activists to government ministers in expensive suits. And yeah, it's a bit of a weird icebreaker around a conference table, because in it we time travel, exercising our empathy muscles across the past, present and future. It seems to do something quite profound for the people who do it, and I can't wait to hear what it does for you. Regardless of where you are in the world, regardless of the time period, human beings, homo sapiens, we need to belong and feel part of something larger than yourselves. If we take it back to this idea of care, care requires observation. It requires presence. And presence can't be rushed. And I hope that people begin to realize that also, like, on the macro level, this is all changeable. And on the micro level, each moment is precious. And so letting this time go by the way that we have been, as though we're watching a movie and just like mindlessly reaching into a bag of Doritos, I don't want us to mindlessly eat up our time. I want us to really enjoy every bite. Let's actually take one of those bites Celeste is talking about. If we zoom out across the last hour, what's stuck with you? Where did it take you? 
Remember I mentioned that my grandma first introduced me to this place. I remember her whenever I come here. She contracted COVID in her care home in the first wave. I remember the call when I found out the news that they would let me in to say goodbye. The thing is, a few weeks before I'd called the care home to tell Grandma the news that I was pregnant with my first baby. She'd been so delighted for me. I'm pregnant, Grandma. Are you? Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Oh, congratulations, darling. So I spent those final hours with one hand holding my dying grandma's delicate fingers and my other touching this delicate new life growing inside me. I felt truly stretched between the generations in that moment. Amidst the sadness and the pain was a sense of being part of a lineage stretching far back into the past and far forward into the future. I saw my moment on this planet with new eyes. I hope you enjoyed your first visit to the Longtime Academy. Do have a go at the Longtime Practice. Next time we meet, I'll be inviting us to start shifting our focus from the tyranny of now to something much, much bigger and getting into the utter, literal awesomeness of deep time and learning why thinking about our own deaths differently not only makes us better ancestors, but happier as well. Please share this episode with someone you think would be interested in getting long time and come on over to thelongtimeacademy.com to connect with me, get involved with our Longtime Academy community and find tools to deepen your journey. The Longtime Academy comes to you from Headspace Studios and The Longtime Project and is produced by Scenery Studios. It was created and produced by Lena Presswood and me, Ella Saltmarsh, with producers Maddie Finlay and Ivor Manley. Executive producers at Headspace Studios are Ash Jones, Leah Sutherland and Morgan Seltzer. Our original music is by Tristan Cassell-Delavoie, Scott Sorensen and Chris Mergier. Thank you.